Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology, new innovations, and ideas that can help the people and planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we'll be talking about a new book, Food Truths, Farm to Table, and the author is Michelle Payne. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. It was really cool. We got together a couple of months ago in uh, Kearney, Nebraska, and I was really lucky to be able to see Michelle present and get kind of a flavor of what the new book was going to be about. And uh, now after looking at it, it's extremely exciting because it has a really important uh, niche in explaining so much about just about every hot button food word is covered in a very critical and appropriate yet approachable way throughout this entire book. And that's why I was excited to have you on. But what was your impetus for writing it? Where did, where did it start? Well, I wrote this book because I saw a huge disconnect between truth and choices in the grocery store. As a farm girl, I see a huge disconnect between the plate and the farm. And I see a disconnect between celebrating our food and our culture and demonizing it. People have become scared of their food. And so four years ago, I actually released No More Food Fights, which is a two-sided book for both the farm and the food audience. And I knew at that time that I probably needed to go around the grocery store to address myths and to help people understand what's real in food and what is false on a label. Uh, So really, for me, it was very much of a personal mission to try to help people not fear their food and to remember that food is basic sustenance. It's nutrition, right? It's what we need. And we shouldn't be um, perhaps emotionalizing our food, but rather just understanding it and particularly the science around it. Yeah, it's a, and, and I, I can't agree with you more. And the reason I and, I, and I get excited about talking about this with you, could you tell us a little bit, though, about your background and, and how you got to this point uh, from the farm to writing books about food? Sure. 
I am a farm girl from southern Michigan. I am a very proud Michigan State Spartan. I feel obliged to say go green at this point. <laughs> I have degrees in animal science and agricultural communications, worked for five years in the reproductive physiology laboratory, paying my own way through school, mostly um, through my dairy cattle and my jobs, and have had the opportunity to work in agriculture my entire career. In the last 16 years, I've had my own business, Cause Matters Corporation, uh, serving as a professional speaker from the intersection of farm and food. So Kevin, what that really evolves, as you can understand, as we've shared a lot of platforms, is trying to help people understand the intersection of farm and food and head and heart. And so throughout the time that I've been speaking and earlier in my career, I've had the opportunity to not only be on my own farm and meet farmers from all over the world, but um, actually, I had the chance to sit down and have some really good conversations and to know the research behind how food is being produced today. And to me, there is a driving need to help people understand where their com food comes from and to help moms in the grocery store understand that they don't have to be scared about going out and buying food and they don't have to feel guilty that they're doing the wrong thing for their family. Um, because as a mom, I do have a daughter who loves to show dairy cattle. But as a mom, I understand that we are all trying to do the right thing, whether you're a mom or a dad or whether you're single or not. We're trying to do the right things for our family and buying food. And to me, it does not have to be that complicated. Um, so I very much see my work as basically serving a calling to help people understand where their food comes from. Yeah, two really important words you said in there were scared and guilt. And I think these are two words which have been potently kind of uh, co-opted in kind of the idea of sales. It almost seems like there's a driver these days for either personal profit through a website or maybe a label on a package that can kind of divert uh, attention away. And how much of that does really play a role in the modern shopping experience. Yeah, and it's huge, Kevin, as I'm sure you can probably appreciate. I mean, you're a leading scientist, so you approach it from a different angle than I do. You know, I just came out of my barn, as you know, a few minutes ago for this interview. But to me, it, it, it comes down to sitting around with my friends around the table. And when I hear that they are worried about chickens having antibiotics in them when it's illegal to be able to um, have antibiotics in chickens as far as having residue and when they're worried about chickens being pumped full of hormones which is definitely illegal because it's not allowed never has been same with turkeys and when they're concerned about buying milk that's hormone free which frankly hormone free doesn't hormone free milk doesn't exist rather that's really hard because unfortunately there is a disconnect between food marketers trying to differentiate commodity products as new and improved by virtue of production and processing techniques and what consumers understand. Yeah. And so when I hear moms around the table, you know, when we're sitting and having a glass of wine and they're talking about how wrong it is uh, to produce food today, I really struggle with that because there's a lot of science that shows what we are doing does indeed result in the safest food supply possible. And I think I, I always think about that. You know, we are living in the golden ages of food availability and food safety. And not just because of the production side, but everything we've learned about, about the supply chain and handling. 
But out of all of these myths, and I know your book is really good at listing them kind of one at a time and going through them carefully, what is the one that you think is most profoundly offensive to you? Of all the myths, well, I listed 25 food truths, so the ones that are most profoundly offensive to me are related to dairy because it's very personal to me, right? Um, Kevin, as you know, I have bred dairy cattle since I was nine years old. I have dairy cattle running around my front yard. I don't claim to be a farmer because I'm a professional speaker and author, but we do breed Holstein still today. My daughter bought her first one when she was nine years old. It is deeply personal. And for all the agriculture folks and probably the scientists too that are listening, I would encourage you to step back and think about what's personally offensive to you in all of these claims. And then I would encourage you to differentiate who you are as a person and a human from those claims. Because I think it's really difficult for those of us that are involved in producing food to help others understand where their food comes from when we get offended. So a quick example, um, I have two fall calves uh, out in my pasture now. They just got kicked out of the barn for their own good and health, and they need to be dehorned. And if you listen to animal rights activists, animal rights activists would tell you that what we're doing is um, removing bones from a cattle skull in cruel ways. And what I would tell you as a mother, that I can't allow my daughter to be out by herself with the calves anymore because their horns are so big. They should have been dehorned weeks ago, and that's my bad for not getting it done. But the horns are are big enough to be able to cause pain. One of them actually nailed her in the side the other day and caused a pretty good bruise. So I try to highlight those practices and the stories of why they make sense from a human perspective first before I go to the science and also bite my own tongue about what's personally offensive, if you will. I don't know if that makes any sense, Kevin, but it's really hard for those of us who consider farming a part of who we are to differentiate the practice from the person. Oh, sure. No, it's exactly the same thing that I go through as a scientist. Because to me, the the way that we answer a question using hypothesis-driven research, this is like a sacred process to me. And correctly and, and, and uh, precisely interpreting data in ways that mesh or, or you know, fit with, the, with expanding what we know. All of that is such a sacred process and something that when I see it violated for um, a political move, like someone publishing a paper or uh, doing something that, uh, doing an experiment that makes absolutely zero sense except to provide red meat for those who want to fight science. Um, and it, you can pick your favorite area, whether it's vaccines or, you know, genetic engineering or whatever. I, I get that same feeling. And I'm never going to teach anybody anything if I'm so angry about the distortion that I fail to be effective in my discussion. Yeah, and and it's interesting to hear you say that science is sacred. So I understand from my days, and I was just a, an undergraduate assistant, right? So I was washing dishes, and I was involved in a lot of the trials and so forth. But when people start questioning the validity of science and the ethics of scientists because it's funded research, I really struggle with that because I've seen a whole lot of science in my day, both on the animal side and the plant side, and I know scientists like you. And sure, there's bad apples out there, but there's bad apple teachers, there's bad apple police officers, there's bad apples in any chosen profession. So I really struggle with the claims around the ethics of the process, whether you're in the lab or whether you're in the farm. Because unless you have firsthand knowledge 
Um, in my opinion, I think we need to be trusting some of that sacred process, as you had mentioned. But frankly, Kevin, I'll throw it on, on you, and you do a great job of this, But and I know you help other scientists with this, but I will throw it back to the scientists every time. If you're not satisfied with the public's understanding of your work and that sacred process and the outcome, then you need to be able to effectively communicate that. Yes. It's absolutely critical, and it's painful. I understand that because I, throughout Food Truths from Farm to Table, I spent days and days and days and days trying to find the right story to translate the most complex science that we have to distill it and simplify it. So I understand how complicated it is, but that's one thing that writing the book really taught me. No, that's and I, and I agree. I think we we do a horrible job at, at reaching out to the public. I think we're getting better. And uh, it's been, it's amazing because I've been doing these workshops now for years and going out and speaking with scientists and teaching them how do we stop talking to the public like we talk to each other. That when you're talking to a mother who's concerned about her food uh, and what she's feeding her child, she doesn't really care about the p-value in figure five. And, no, <laughs> and so... Let me assure you... <laughs> But that's the way that we're used to talking to each other and the way we debate each other. And we're comfortable with beating each other over the head with facts and statistics. But it's about that stepping back away from that and being able to approach people based upon um, you know what's important to them and what's important to me and earning trust. And I think it's the same thing, you know, and, and I think it's the scientists and farmers are very much on the same page. And we're just starting to realize how to reach out effectively. Yes, I I would agree with that, Kevin, and I think that farmers and scientists both want to dump data on people's feet, and it doesn't work. People want the story behind their food. They want the emotional connection. They want the feel-good, and when you consider all the myths that are out there, uh, the reality is, is that science isn't sexy. Science doesn't sell, and that does not mean, to be clear, that I don't believe in science because some folks have misinterpreted that. I simply don't believe we can lead with science. Where we have to lead is the people that we're talking to, their hot buttons, their interests, and try to figure out how to translate our knowledge in a meaningful way. And in my experience, that is through story. It's not through, well, I have 10 data sets that clearly prove that we have decades <laughs> of efficacious research, right? It, that doesn't work, folks. Oh, you've, seen, you've seen me talk. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you do a lot better job than that, Kevin. But sometimes it's stepping back and simply saying, you know, I was in the lab last night and this really cool thing happened. And I saw this happen to a plant or I saw this process and instead of making it a data set, make it a story that other humans can relate to. Because when they relate to you, they will trust you. Very good. So that, and that's, that's actually a lesson I learned in grant writing because uh, everybody is taught a formula. And everybody says, well, our universities hire these uh, professionals to come by and teach the formula. And I look at it and I go, that's nothing I ever learned about in communication. I always learn you create a need or demonstrate a need, show the need, and then show how your solutions can fill that need. And so I write everything from a very rhetorical base rather than uh, a dry expository scientific base. And I think the only reason I'm a good grant getter is because I'm a good we're good at framing the story of the science that we're attacking. Well, right, but Kevin, you're probably a little unusual because don't you also 
weren't you in a rock band when you were younger or something? Well, I've done a lot of stuff like this. I mean, but between <laughs> but between <laughs> between playing in Insane War Tomatoes and Blue Lobster Cult, um, <laughs> or no, Red Lobster Cult, Red Lobster Cult, or Blue Oyster Cult. Um, I, I played music, but I, I also did a lot of uh, speech and debate, and I also did stand up comedy and wrote for comics, uh, improv, all that stuff, and it really helps. Right. And, 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 that's my point, is you have a different way of framing things because of your life experiences. And you know how to connect with people because of those experiences you have. And I have great respect for the folks that have been in a laboratory. But in order to be effective in helping people understand science today, you have to get out of the laboratory. And you have to be able to relate to people on their level, not yours. Beautiful. So, so let, let's talk a little about a few more of the highlights of the book, a few more of the stories that are in there. Um, sure. Just because the thing that and I, I can go back to, um, uh, let's do this. We'll take a short break and then come back on the other side and hit specific stories. But as a prelude to that, the thing that I really like about the book is that it, it has all of the information for people like, like me who works mostly in plants and helps me understand the issues inside animal agriculture, um, RBST, um, eggs and egg practices, dairy. And I, I don't know that stuff really well, but I know bits and pieces. So it really gave me the good fill in and uh, kind of does that all the way through. So um, what I would really like to talk about on the other side are a couple of the little, um, a couple of the little vignettes perhaps that come from this. So so this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm Kevin Fulton. We're talking to Michelle Payne about her book, Food Truths, Farm to Table. We'll be right back in just a minute. The Talking Biotech Podcast has one goal, and that's to get you excited about your food, new technologies, and the good things we can do when we put the two together. We live in a time of great innovation and discovery, yet... The new findings are slow, oftentimes, to reach the public. And, and why is that? Because of the tremendous misunderstanding, coupled to a complacent population that would rather err to the side of caution, rather than implement safe technology that can help farmers, consumers, and the planet. And that's why it's so important that you listen and share the stories of agricultural technology that's why this podcast is important, because it provides you with access to the experts that tell the beautiful stories of the genetic improvement of crops, animals, and medicines. So please make sure you complete a review on iTunes, share the podcast with a friend, listen to it around the dinner table, and share the stories of the secret lives of the botanical critters in each layer of that seven-layer salad. With your help, we can move agricultural innovation to application, and that happens with communication. We're all in this together to bring safe and affordable technologies that help our people and our planet. And so we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today with Michelle Payne, who's the author of Food Truths Farm to Table, and we're talking about the different aspects of the book and a lot about science and farm communication, agricultural communication. But what I'd like to get into at this point are some of the highlights of the book to really help this audience understand these issues because they come up frequently in conversation. 
So when we talk about issues like, um, let's just talk about, say, uh, antibiotics or hormones, and we're talking about, say, chickens or let, let's just say poultry. You mentioned earlier it's not allowed to be used or hormones are never been allowed. But where does that begin and end? And, and, and are they used? And, and how does that affect eggs? Well, I think it's interesting when you step back and you look at some of the myths around um, the hormones in food, in particular in animal production. So first off, I, the way that I started, and this is a, a way to be able to translate science out, hormones are in everything is my number one food truth, uh, just because of the order that it's in, not because of the importance, uh, is helping people understand that hormones, in short, are the chemical messengers of life. Hormones are in everything. Hormones are in plant products. Uh, if you use maple syrup on your pancakes or waffles this morning, I like to refer to that as hormone sap. To help <laughs> people understand that trees do have hormones in them, and it's okay, quite frankly. Um, and so I actually went in and I found the definition of hormones, and I started there and describing them to people and helped them understand that we have them in our body. And as a woman, and Kevin, you get to make no comment about this whatsoever. <laughs> as a woman, yes, I have hormones, and no, I do not like them, and yes, they change regularly. So to relate that for, from the food perspective, a lot of things that I hear is, for example, um, chickens and turkeys have big breasts because they've been pumped full of hormones, which is false. Uh, turkeys and chickens have larger breasts today because of consumer man demand and because they have been bred for that. Not in any cruel or unusual way, but it's the power of genetics, right? Which brings in, uh, let's see, it is the one on Food Truth. I'm trying to find it here. What number is it? It's, genes are the coolest ingredient on your plate, Food Truth number 10. You know, there's a lot of amazing science that happens. So genetics are the reason why chickens and turkeys have larger breasts to meet consumer demands. Hormones are not allowed to use and poultry. So if you see a label that says hormone-free chicken or hormone-free turkey, number one, it's a lie. There is no such thing. They have hormones in them and it's okay. And then if they say that they're, the chicken or the turkey have never been um, injected with hormones, uh, that's fabulous, but nothing has ever been injected with hormones as far as poultry because it's not illegal. It doesn't exist. Um, so I encourage people to kind of step back and become familiar with that. But then when you go and you look at the dairy case as an example and you look at, at hormones in milk, people uh, are concerned about two things in milk typically. Antibiotics is the top one and hormones is usually right up there as well. Uh, so all milk, including women's breast milk, has hormones in it. Always has, always will. And if you look at the estrogen levels that are in breast milk as compared to cow's milk, uh, they're substantially higher, is my understanding, in breast milk. And then when you take a look at, for example, if you're a person who likes to drink what I call nut juice, um, which is almond juice, um, as a dairy person, I have a hard time saying that that's milk. And you look at the nutrient level and the amount of available nutrients that there are to absorb, they're not nearly as high. And then if you go to bean juice, which I call is what I call soy milk, and you look at the estrogens in there, they are quite high. So it's a fascinating comparison when you get into it. And the thing about RBST, which is the recombinant bovine somatotropin that is um, what is given to cows in order to increase their production, and it is a huge case study on retail differentiation, trying to um, 
differentiate their product from their competitors, right? Mm -hmm. It is a protein hormone, which means that it can't have any difference between a cow. You can't test for uh, bovine somatotropin because milk from a cow that has been supplemented with RBST has no different milk. Right, you can't you can't effectively differentiate it from one and the other, and Precisely. well, and and this is and especially when we talk about well milk, but meat products, these things are in such vanishingly small amounts in the beginning when they're administered, and milk and maybe correct me on this, but you know, can you even obtain milk from an animal immediately after injection? Yeah, you can. Oh, you can. And, okay. Oh, absolutely, you can. Okay. I mean. It, but here's the what what you may not understand is number one I would never advocate for drinking for raw raw milk anyhow um, the science doesn't support it and my personal experience certainly doesn't support it uh, so you can um, milk goes from the cow to the bulk tank it's cooled it goes to the processor it's tested numerous times it's tested at the bulk tank level it's tested at the trucker level it's tested at the processing plant level for antibiotics. Uh, but again, there's no differentiation hormone levels whatsoever. What? Um, and it's a protein hormone. So it's safe because it's like all dietary proteins. Enzymes in your digestive tract break it all down um, before you absorb them. So it's a moot point. Exactly. I, I always That's always the big thing about proteins. You know, they and even nucleic acids, I mean, they don't even get through the uh, through the stomach in most cases beyond peptides. And, um, yes. you know, so what about eggs? And eggs are always becoming a hotter and hotter button issue that you hear cage free. Um, I don't know. What's the other ones? You know, that only buy the brown ones, um, you know, fresh from the farm or farm fresh is another great term. So what are some of the ways that we can think about eggs a little more practically without fearing guilt? Yeah, eggs are an interesting case study. It's actually the second section that I covered in Food Truths from um, Farm to Table. We had nine different sections. We started in the dairy case, then we went to the egg case. And by my count, in a, I need to look at the description, but I think it was in a 32-square-foot uh, area. I saw, no, it was a 10-foot square area. I saw 36 different claims of egg labels. And so that was the one section I actually went through at the end of it, and I broke down egg labels. Um, and explain to people that brown is actually um, because it's from the color of chicken. Again, it gets back to genetics, and it points to uh, food truth number 13. Science is an amazing science, from, or excuse me, food is an amazing science from farm to table uh, because it's breeding. That's what results in a brown egg. And all of the different claims that are out there um, about eggs, like a natural egg. Okay, Kevin, you tell me what's an unnatural egg? <laughs> it's a good point. <laughs> I would say maybe I mean, those Cadbury cream ones. Well, duh. <laughs> but the claim could be made that those are natural too because they come from cocoa, right? That's true. No, and, and, and all natural high fructose corn syrup. No, I, no, <laughs> yeah. no I, I'm, I'm with you. You know, we're on the same page on such things. I get that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I totally understand your point. What what can be more natural than uh, than an egg? You know, it's it's it's... And that's a, but, but what are some of the other things we think about in terms of like this uh, free range and that kind of stuff? Does that come any risks to the chickens? 
Well, it absolutely does. So I actually cited several studies, but to me, what was the most meaningful throughout the entire book, but particularly the egg cases, I interviewed over 55 experts. Most of them were farmers and ranchers. I also had some food scientists, dietitians, and uh, medical experts. So I tried to cover the whole range, people with the firsthand knowledge. And the studies that I looked at and cited throughout the book clearly showed that there is not a distinct advantage to one kind of hen housing uh, than another. So this is the one that seems to get people's attention the most. If you've ever dealt with a chicken, you know that chickens are omnivores. And that means that they like both meat and vegetables, which is fabulous. But you um, may not also understand that they are probably the biggest scavengers on earth and that they will eat each other if given the opportunity. Um, animals, like it or not, like to bully each other. They pick on the weakest. Uh, chickens, pigs do awful things to animals that they consider to be weaker, and they will be cannibalistic, to be very blunt about it. And I hate to gross anybody out, but that's the reality when you're dealing with animals. And so when you step back and you combine that logic with the science, and the practical experience from the farm, you start thinking through, well, if they're in a free-range system and they're allowed to eat anything they want to, uh, you can rest assured that they are eating uh, some sort of protein source, which they can get from a variety of sources, um, including other chickens. They are eating their own feces because they like to do that. They're also eating grain and minerals and so forth. I am not against free range, to be clear, but you need to understand exactly what it is. And it's not just the idyllic, pretty little chicken running around pecking at grain that farmer and overall throws out. Yeah, right? I, yeah, I know my sister actually raises some chickens, and she had a, has a hawk problem that, that it kind of feeds the local uh, uh, <laughs> birds of prey population. Yeah, so there's obviously, you know, as an animal owner, last night the coyotes were running around um, by my pasture in pretty close proximity. Yeah. And when you look at, at the reality, we have predators, so when animals are inside, they're protected from predators. So when you go back to the free range and you compare that to the caged housing or the aviary, which is where the, the chickens are in a confined operate or confined barn, if you will, but they have some sort of enhancements, like they might have a scratching post and, and so forth. So cages sound terrible, but here's what the science shows. Uh, the chickens in cages, as long as this is a substantial area, are frequently healthier. Uh, they frequently have a much lower death loss. The capital cost, meaning how much it costs to produce an egg, is substantially lower. And the eggs are oftentimes cleaner because one of the things that's attractive to me from a scientific view and from a mom view and from knowing chicken feces view <laughs> is that you know, you know the eggs roll away from the birds immediately so not to be gross but they don't get pooped on um and so they're cleaner right they're washed as well but the, the risk of salmonella in that type of system is considerably lower because they're also frequently vaccinated and um they again are removed from the feces but when you step back and you get to one of the primary food or one of the primary concerns is food costs in the grocery store. Um, and when you consider the fact that the um, aviary cost had 179% higher cost than a caged, 
to me, that's really hard to justify. And it's not because I don't care about chickens, but it's because I care about humans having a good, safe protein source more. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the, uh, the, the cost of eggs is, I mean, in terms of the cost per gram of protein is really good. And, and, uh, and the quality of protein. And if we talk about, so let's shift a little bit away from animals and into plants. And we talk a little, you talk a lot about this in your book between fruits and vegetables, but a lot about uh, the kinds of pesticides that are used or in some cases not used. But one of the things that's kind of surprising is where the majority of the pesticides come from. And did you want to touch on that just a bit? Yeah, I think it's interesting, and pesticides are an interesting place for um, discussion because, first off, people hear chemicals and they freak, right? I mean, I don't want chemicals in my child's food. I completely understand that. But when you step back as a scientist, and this is where, if you are a scientist, I would strongly encourage you to help people understand the building blocks of life because they don't understand um, that we are comprised of chemicals and that that the whole world involves chemicals. And so I try to explain that first. And then I also start talking about how plants produce their own chemicals. Um, And I talk about they produce their own pesticides and they do so to be able to um, survive over time. And that allows them to be able to compete against a crazy number of weeds, funguses, molds, Uh, You name it, bugs, insects, there's a lot of pressure. And if you've ever gardened, and this is a story that I get into throughout the book, is if you've ever gardened, you know what it's like to have aphids on your tomatoes, right? I mean, they're disgusting. And you know what it's like to deal with the weeds pressure. Well, when you uh, multiply that over a 1,000 acres, that becomes a substantial problem for food production. And so pesticides, we also need to step back, frankly, from the pharmacide, and we need to explain that an herbicide is for weeds, and an insecticide is for bugs, and a fungicide is for fungus, because people don't understand that. No, that's very true. But we lump them all together as pesticides, but we really should be speaking, at least as a communication strategy, we should never use the word pesticide, and we should speak specifically about the kind of pesticide we're referring to. Yes, and and sometimes I think it's okay to use pesticides because otherwise we would spend our entire time explaining (laughs) the difference between them. Yeah, That's one of the challenges, and I know this is really tough for highly technical people, but I think it's critical that if we're talking about a particular application. um, So, you know, I learned some things in writing this book, too. You write 100,000 words, you have a tendency to learn a whole lot, in fact. But um, I, because I'm from Michigan, I was around some different kinds of fruit production than a, what a lot of Midwesterners are. And two of the folks that I interviewed in my book, uh, Jeff Vanderwerf, who's an apple grower as well as a corn, wheat, and soybean farmer in western Michigan, and Ben LaCrosse, who is a cherry farmer up in a beautiful, beautiful area of Michigan, I had them go through in extensive detail exactly what they apply to their fruit and why they do it. And I explain it throughout the book. And one of the things that they each talked about was integrated pest management and what they do between technology, uh, patterns, consultants, scientists, and so forth to do the best thing in producing fruit. 
But the other piece of it, when you step back, Kevin, and I'm sure you experienced this from the strawberry side that people don't understand, is the pre-harvest interval. And when you hear pre-harvest interval, if you don't har- understand harvest to start with, you kind of go, I don't know what that is. So what I start talking about is a withdrawal period that products are not allowed to be used before a fruit or a vegetable is harvested. And explain to them what that looks like. And then, frankly, I use the farmer's words themselves and quoted them extensively because they're the best people. They're the ones that are out there doing it. Yeah, one of the nice parts about that part of the book is there was a mention of, um, uh, I guess it was a little girl or someone who's on a farm tour who um, all, who mentioned that her father tries to plant cherry trees, but they always die. And it really <laughs> yeah. shows what you're up against, and, and especially tree crop growers. Uh, you know, you can't just plant a new one next year and expect to make money from it. I mean, this is a long-term investment that you have to manage extremely carefully with an integrated pest management approach, um, combining so many different facets and continual scouting. And uh, and so it's that's a real challenge that I really have only appreciated in the last few years. Yeah, it's crazy. And Jeff mentioned how much money he loses every time it rains. Um, and I'm trying to, oh yeah, he said it's about $15,000 that he loses every time it rains with his <laughs> apple trees. You know, that provides perspective in the risk management. And one of the food truths that I have in the book, number 20, I'm looking for it right now, um, 23, yeah, pay less now, pay more later. Farmers experience that too. It's a multi-million or a multi-billion dollar risk that they are taking against Mother Nature. And it's terrifying, frankly. And sadly, we see this more and more, especially as weather becomes unpredictable. Um, you know, down here, we got freezes one year and we've got too much heat the next and uh, things not flowering, things not uh, being having the same uh, robustness and fruit set, uh, a lot that our growers go through. Well, and not um, to mention the greening of the citrus. I mean, that's been oh, horrifying. Yeah. No, that's yeah. a that's a, a horrifying topic covered on a couple of podcasts here. And we'll, have, we'll come back to it again pretty soon. Um, another couple of questions for you, though. Like thinking about, you mentioned a lot about organic and what that means and what it doesn't mean, and kind of the funny halo it gets. Would you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be glad to. And let me be very clear for anyone who is listening. Um, as a person who tries to speak from the intersection of farm and food, I do feel it's important from the farm side to talk about the fact that I advocate for all types of production. And I absolutely advocate for my friends who farm organically, and yes, I do have them that farm organically, as well as my friends who use biotechnology. Because farmers and ranchers deserve choices just as much as we deserve choice in the grocery store. But to take a step back, and when you look at organics and you consider the fact that they are unquestionably the darling of the grocery store and they have increased substantially in the market share over the last 10 years, I think it's really important to understand that organic is not a nutritional claim. It is a production practice. Food truth number five is organic farming is about production methods, not nutritional value. And I think that's hard for people to understand. And you can find science on both sides of the equation, but at the end of the day, it washes out. And in my scientific opinion, that there is not substantially more nutritional value in in an organic product. And more importantly, I have quoted a number of scientists and dietitians in the book that continue to cite that. 
So one of the misnomers, as an example, is that chemicals are not used in organic production. Well, first off, plants are producing chemicals, animals are producing chemicals of their own, and secondly, chemicals are indeed used in organic production because you have to, again, protect fruit from a nasty um, worm, you have to protect a vegetable from insects, you have to protect tomatoes from fungus and mold, and so forth. So the reality is where food is grown, chemicals are required because they are competing against so many different thousands of species of weeds and insects and types of molds and fungi. Now, that's a really good point. And it's actually, you bring it up very nicely in your book that um, the same pesticide that's used in organic uh, people love it, but when you put it inside the plant and have the plant produce the same protein, they're not so excited about that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, Kevin. And as a scientist, you're probably more equipped to talk to it, but talk about it. But you're talking about Bt, which is an organic pesticide, so it's a a natural insecticide actually that kills bugs. And as I understand it, it's quite toxic. Is that right? Well, it's extremely toxic to its targets but minimally, yes. to- to- minimally toxic to non-targets, which makes it really cool. Yeah, it, so see, you're getting all geeked out about science. I looked at it from a, a practical mom level <laughs> and from, from a quasi-scientist <laughs> level. But So here's the deal. Why is it okay to apply it directly to organic products, and why is it okay for that to be used as a natural insecticide, but it's not okay for a gene from that bacterium to be taken and stuck into a corn plant to make that corn plant naturally resistant to rootworm. I really struggle with why that's not okay. And one of the things that I I spoke about in the book is pexniferi, which is a nice way to say that we're hypocrites. (laughs) (laughs) And I I have to give a tribute to Katie Pratt in Illinois, who is a a farmer and a friend, um, because I was looking, I had my advisory committee for my book, and they told me I couldn't tell people they were hypocrites, even though I really wanted to. Um, But I have a, um, a chapter in the book, entitled are you practicing pexniferi yeah (laughs) i had to look it up (laughs) yeah and we all are that's the reality of it we like to think we're going you know i like to think that i'm going to exercise for 90 minutes every day seven days a week in reality i probably am going to bake globe fat chocolate brownies one of those days and eat half a pan of them (laughs) (laughs) i'm a hypocrite too you know i'm a big enough person to admit that Uh, But, you know, getting back to the whole thing with BT, it's just, it gets down to this is why we so badly need scientists and farmers to communicate, because how else will people understand the complex science behind a natural insecticide that's used in organic produce, but is a bad guy when it's used in corn and biotechnology? Yeah, it really makes me sad because it's such a wonderful product. And I've seen, uh, you know, and I I don't want to mention any specific crops just because I don't you know want to go there. But where you have the genetically engineered version that makes BT planted in fields adjacent to those that um, do not have BT because they're saying they're going to sell those products to Europe and you can't uh-huh. have the BT gene. But when the spray planes come out, they only go over those non-BT fields. Mm-hmm. And during the right times of year, it is all day, every day. And you're out in the field and you hear those planes coming over, each one going back to pick up another load of uh, insecticide. 
that it's going to now introduce to the environment and kill every insect in that field, um, just about, versus the BT crop, which selectively just protects itself against those that are feeding on it. And I have such a hard time with that. Yeah, and that's because you understand the practicality of that. So here's what we're dealing with, Calvin. 1.5% of the population is on a farmer ranch today. 98.5% is not. If we don't invite them onto our farms and ranches, either in person, virtually, or, or through the images that we share, how are they supposed to know that? Because all they see are planes and huge sprayers. If you're in the Midwest, you see huge sprayers or you see planes and you see them flying over the fields and you think farmers are poisoning fields. And if we're not telling people any differently, and unfortunately when it comes to GMOs, we all know it. We're behind the eight ball. It is by far the most contentious issue out there, particularly in social media. I mean, you've taken a whole lot of hits about it. <laughs> but... But we haven't, you know, we led with the values to the producers. There's a lot of values to consumers about why we want to be able to do that. And and one of the reasons or one of the things that I talk with farmers about discussing is sustainability. And sustainability is food truth number 12. Sustainability is complex and essential to uh, family businesses. And part of sustainability is using science to our advantage to lessen the impact on the environment which biotechnology products do because we don't have to spray the highly toxic pesticides of the past. Oh, very well put. And, you know, it's, it's, but that's such a, an important message. And, you, you know, getting into what you just started talking about here are agricultural producers and their voices. And when I saw you speak in Nebraska back in January, I mean, it was amazing, and this, I always, I I stuck around just to see you talk because I I love watching you give a presentation. You motivate ag producers to really take this on themselves and that they are the voice and that they are the most trusted uh, people to be speaking on these issues. And uh, what are some of the things that you might want to use this platform? We have quite a few that listen to this podcast. What are some tips and ideas that maybe could help our ag producers participate in this dialogue a little bit more well where i always and thank you for the nice words by the way but where i always start with uh, farmers and ranchers is to try to ask you to step back and think about how you want to farm and ranch in the future when you look five and ten and twenty years down the road what are the tools that you want to be using and then i ask will you have the permission to use those tools because as a consumer, I want to be able to be sure my food is safe for my family. As a farmer, I want to be able to do what I need to do to my cattle to ensure their welfare, to, re- to ensure their productivity, and to ensure it's the right thing to do. And so what it all boils down to, if you're a producer, is protecting your right to farm and ranch as you best see fit in the future. And the reality is, is we're losing permission to do that, whether it's GMO, whether it's animal welfare, uh, whether it's looking at local versus global. Consumers have a right, certainly, to influence the food discussion and to request what they want to spend their money on. We all have to accept that because they ultimately are going to determine it based on their dollar. But what we do not have to accept is the undue influence that has absolutely happened across this discussion around food. And so 
if you're frustrated, as most of us are, whether it's regulatory, whether it's your next door neighbor, or whether it's consumer acceptance, if you are frustrated, you have to take responsibility for this conversation on your own shoulders. And I know you're busy. I understand you probably don't want to deal with it. But in, in reality, today in 2017, this is the best business practice. And I might add, it's probably a best business practice, whether you're a farmer, whether you're a rancher, or whether you're a scientist. Oh, damn right. I think, did you pound the table there? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I heard a little table pounding. But the, the, you know me, I can't talk with them. See, this is the problem doing this over Skype. Normally, I stand up and walk around, so I can't, like... And nobody can hear me waving my hands, but yes, I, I did actually pound my desk. <laughs> yeah, that sounded like it. But you're exactly right. And I tell this to farmers all the time when I have uh, agricultural audiences, is that it's about their freedom to operate. And if you look back in the uh, at the industries that in the 1990s said, we don't, oh, we don't need a website, what do we want that for? You know, uh, you have to be having the discussion in the place where the discussion is happening and if your voice isn't there someone else will do it for you and i know in the end of your book you even started to touch on some of those other alternative sources of information and uh, some of the myths they help propagate and if our producers aren't in that space then somebody else is (laughs) Yeah, when you look at social media, I mean, it, it, the messages that have been propagated out there are certainly interesting. I would encourage anyone to engage in ag chat or food chat on Twitter. And when you take a look at it, um, to give you an idea, my research, and I've been researching activist numbers in social media since 2009, January 2009. It's a long time ago. And my research shows that there's been a 550-fold increase of Humane Society's following on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, to me, as a person who stands out there and, and treats my own cattle and, and does things that they like to make claims about, I have a problem with that. And if my voice isn't in the conversation and your voice isn't in the conversation, it's only their voice in the conversation, spreading half-truths, misinformation, and flat-out lies. And I am not okay with that as an agriculturalist, as a producer, as an advocate, as a mom. You know, so I would just encourage you all to think about if it's not your voice, if you're not the one willing to engage engage in this, then who is? So all of this, uh, all of the book really comes from a place that you've been working on over years and all your experiences in these areas. What is your food philosophy? Well, Kevin, at the end of the book, that was actually one thing that I put in as the final words was my food philosophy, not because I think that I'm brilliant, but because of the perspective that I bring to the conversation is very different than the highly sensationalized, emotionalized uh, voices that have been there before. And I very much believe that this is about the truth in food raised the right way by the right people for the right reasons. And to take a step back and and think about, you know, I wrote actually a baker's dozen of uh, different points. Uh, When I think about food, I talk about things like choice matters and that there is a circle of life and it includes dirt and bacteria and DNA and chemicals. And my editor wouldn't let me say get over it, so I had to say move on. But (laughs) (laughs) you, you get the point. You know, and pointing out things like size doesn't matter. Uh, it, it doesn't define the farm or ranch. It's the family that does. And, and that we have to take responsibility for our own food choices 
And the one that I think is probably the most essential as a consumer of food, as we all are, is that we have to be responsible for measuring all food claims against our ethical, our health, our environmental, and our social standards without any righteousness. And if we all know what our ethical, our health, our environmental, and our social standards are, and that's how we purchase our food, then we're doing the right thing. You know, as a scientist, you probably go to the store and you look at food very differently than most people. As a producer, I go to the store and I look at food very differently. But where we have to help people understand is that there's somewhere in the middle that we can all meet. And at some point, we have to think about everybody in this, which includes hungry people. It includes people with diseases. It includes people all around this world. And it's a complex issue. You know, that's the reality of it. But at the end of it all, what I always try to help people remember is that it gets back to food is about celebration. And it's designed to bring people together. So let's indeed celebrate that. Oh, such wonderful words to close on. Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to uh, follow you on social media, your website, uh, Twitter, where can they do that? You can follow me on social media at Speaker. So it's at M-P-A-Y-N-S-P-E-A-K-E-R. Uh, you can visit my website at causematters.com. Food Truths from Farm to Table is available as of March 20th, 2017. You can't tell I'm very excited about that date. On uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it should be at your local library. We are working to get it into numerous universities and food science, dietetic, and nutrition and agriculture program. So hopefully you can also uh, find it there. And by all means, you are more than welcome to email me if you wish to as well. And you can do that by book at causematters.com. So, Michelle Payne, thank you so much for taking the time with me to really explain this. And I, I, I too, really urge people to uh, go out and buy the book. Go on Amazon and buy it. No matter where you stand in this discussion, you can learn something important from it. And more importantly, I think Michelle frames these things in ways that can help us share the stories of food and farming and debunk the myths in ways that are going to be extremely compatible with people's expectations, both online and even in interpersonal relationships. So thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks, Kevin. And hey, thank you for everything that you do on behalf of agriculture and science and in trying to get people's heads straight. We really do appreciate it. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. 
C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.